You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect us to challenges and obstacles? Out of the darkness, into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, the author of Women on Waves, a cultural history of surfing from ancient goddesses and Hawaiian queens to Malibu movie stars and millennial champions. After the break, former Paralympic medalist and world record holder, Todd Schaffauer, joins the conversation. Jim Captain, welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Thank you. It's good to be here. So let me share the preface and tell me if I got this right, because I think this really captures everything about the book. If ever there had been a subject so ripe for exploration or so appropriate for recounting, the history of women surfing is it. Do you, uh, do you agree or disagree in terms of what you did in, in terms of putting this book together? There's a lot that went into it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, think, uh, I, I think that's accurate. And uh, I think I didn't realize when I had even written that how much I bit off. Now, I want to just uh, follow up initially with HBO did a series called The 100 Foot Wave. Are you familiar with that? Yes. I'd love to hear your thoughts because it is spectacular, but it raises a lot of questions. What's considered, um, I guess, big wave surfing throughout the world. Yeah, well, Nazare is one of probably three or four places that actually has the opportunity to have a 100-foot wave. There just aren't that many that have at least been discovered so far that exist. Um, so one of the interesting things is is that the, the lead character in that, Mr. McNamara, actually did most of the filming with his own crew before they ever started uh, producing that show. Now, you... Um do you, there's other places I think maybe I'm sure some of the people in your book also talk about Mavericks, Jaws, and how Nazare in Portugal was discovered. It was a little fishing village and all of a sudden it became the, the, the conquest, the search for, quote unquote, the 100 foot wave. I do know two people in the book are female big wave surfers. One is from Brazil and one is from France, and I know that they attacked it. And the first time, the young lady from Brazil almost lost her life before the competition, I believe, in 2019. So you want to amplify on that, please? She had, it was actually earlier than that, but she had a tremendous uh, wipeout. Uh, her, her jet ski partner, who is the person who kind of takes you into the waves and then and then is your your sort of lifeguard if there is such a thing partner uh looks after you had thought he lost her the wave was so big overturned his jet ski too he was unable to get to her he was searching desperately in the water finally found her face down got her in gave her mouth-to-mouth station and she and she survived um with only a, a a small a small set of injuries but uh, the interesting thing when you talk about women surfing today and the, and the development is in 2020, the largest wave ridden by a man or a woman was ridden at Nazare by Maya Gaviera. But the really interesting thing is, is that the second largest wave ever ridden by a man or a woman in 2020 was ridden by Justine Dupont, uh, a French big wave surfer. So that's where the, the sort of stage of women surfing has come to. 
they are breaking records for both men and women in the big waves. What is the attraction of big wave surfing? I had a conversation with a writer named Jennifer Murphy who wrote the book called First Responder. You and Jennifer had the same publicist in Pegasus Books. Mm -hmm. And we had a discussion mm -hmm. um, about do surfers in that situation have a death wish or is it something beyond that? Is in a sense, is they're most alive when they're in these precarious situations. Yeah, I think the same people who love to go to horror movies and love to ride roller coasters, uh, I think it's the same sensation there. Are a lot of us that just don't get how fun that can possibly be, but there are others that just live for it. And it's sort of the, I would say, the ultimate, the ultimate extension of that sort of love for thrills. My guest is Jim Kepton. The new book is called Women on Waves. This is the Artful Periscope. And I'm Larry Davidson. Let's go back into in terms of the origins of surfing. Where was the earliest surfboard ever found? How far back in history does it go? So the very first surfboard that they know of, now this is certainly not the first surfboard, but the oldest surfboard that they have in their possession is one from the, about 1640. Uh, they know that from all the Hawaiian uh, um, oral traditions. Uh, so they know quite a bit about who it was and it happened to be a princess. In those days, the Hawaiian royalty was buried much like they do, the, the pharaohs were buried in Egypt. Right. Uh, in this case, they were in lava, in lava caves, very dry, so everything was preserved. And they would, like the, like, like the Egyptians, put their favorite their favorite items with them uh, to go to the afterlife with them. And for her, it was a surfboard. You mentioned Hawaiian princess. There was a tremendous TV program about Princess Kaolani um, from Hawaii. And she ended up coming to America to speak up on her, her country, her kingdom. She gets to meet with the president of the United States and promises were made. Grover Cleveland was the president at that time, and she goes back to her country. But she was very prominent in surfing. Did she keep surfing alive in Hawaii for females? Well, in fact, she may have kept surfing uh, alive for everyone. She was, she was in line. She was the last in line to the throne. Uh, her mother was Queen Liliuokalani, so she was the next, uh, the next queen, and she had been educated in England. She loved surfing so much, she actually had a board brought to Brighton Beach where she went surfing in England with no wetsuit, I might add. But when she came back, the missionaries had pretty much outlawed surfing for the general populace, um, but they couldn't stop her because she was royalty. They couldn't stop her from surfing and she continued on until she died in 1898. Uh, and just a few years after that, Duke Hanamoku and uh, his brothers and many of the other uh, great Hawaiians kind of revived the sport. Uh, or at least exposed it to the Europeans. And so there's a very strong case to be made that had she not continued to surf, that it might have died out altogether. What role does surfing play in the cultural history of places where it is prominent and was prominent? It's not just a physical act. It's an, it's an emotional act. It's a psychological act. It's, it's a reflection of people in certain areas in the world and the role that the ocean plays in terms of how they view themselves. Would you agree or disagree with that? No, I absolutely think that's true. I think, I think that for the Hawaiians in particular, the Polynesians, because those in other areas have also served 
they find uh, this incredible connection to their culture because they got to those islands over thousands of miles of water. So they are intricately involved in it. They know the ocean probably better than anyone. And they had giant romances. They had bets in which whole whole uh, kingdoms were, were lost and gained uh, in the gamble of, of a single wave. Uh, and, and, their, and their history abounds with stories about surfing uh, in their culture. Let's mention some female surfers because they're prominent. This is what the book is all about. And what I, what I like that you did in this book, there are cultural references to every decade that you report on. So we go, we go back to old television shows, old music, what's going on. And you know what? I really appreciate that. It was a lot of fun because it brings me back to certain memories in my time. Now, there's a great writer named Agatha Christie. Was Agatha Christie also a surfer? She was not just a surfer. She was an absolute fanatic. And she uh, she was one of the very first surfers to surf in Hawaii and also one of the very first surfers to surf in South Africa. Uh, South Africa had been introduced to surfing by a woman. Uh, another little known fact that I uh, discovered, much to my surprise, but two, uh, two, two GIs in the First World War were returning. They loaned their board to her and she, and she surfed on them in 1918 and introduced uh, the, the country of South Africa to surfing. Agatha Christie arrived there in, in, in eight, uh, 1922 and, uh, and, and so was one of the very first surfers there. And then in, in uh, 1924 went to Hawaii on a round-the-world voyage where she completely fell in love with stand-up surfing and wrote about it extensively uh, in her diaries. There's another name that's going to surprise you or surprise us who listen to this podcast um, before she changed her name to Marilyn Monroe, also a surfer. So I don't know where you find all this relevant information, but that's another one that kind of surprised me. You know, it's funny. I don't think I would have been able to write this book uh, in a period before the Internet because to, to gather all of this would have taken so long. It would have been a 10 year process instead of a two year process to, you know, to, to get this stuff to come together. But with the Internet, there's just an unbelievable amount if you're willing to dig that, you know, one thing leads to another. When they talk about surfing the Internet, it's, it's, it's more like mining the Internet. Right. Uh, you just have to keep going down down different shafts until you find the one that, that but each one leads to another spot that you can go to. And, and, and in fact, Tommy Zahn, who was a, a, an actor and a, and a big surfer at the time at Malibu, uh, was dating Marilyn Monroe, and he actually ended up dropping her because he wanted to date uh, Darlene Zanuck, who was Daryl Zanuck's right. uh, daughter, who was also a big surfer. And he thought it was a much better bet for him to to date the daughter of the of the of the mogul that he was trying to get work from than some uh, fledgling star who was uh, still trying to make it in the movies. Now, surfing kind of migrated, and we may have touched upon that, but if I didn't, I want you to amplify Hawaii. What put it to California? And when it came to California, was there the first female surfer? Can you name one person? Or was it a group of people? It's it's really hard to try to identify uh, because in California they weren't covering surfing at that point in time the way they were, for instance, in Australia or in Hawaii. There was a lot more written about uh, the sort of twenties. 
uh, and from the turn of the century to to the 30s uh, in in those areas, and there was in California. So and California's you know a long long coastline with right. people in Santa Cruz, Malibu, uh, Wind and Sea, you know San Diego, Los Angeles, and 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 you know the Bay Area. So it's really hard to know, but there was certainly one surfer that we know of in San Diego uh, in 1926 who uh, surfed on New Year's Eve. Uh, in front of a crowd of thousands of people for a, for a demonstration that a, a ballroom that had just been built there was giving on, on New Year's Eve and gave a demonstration, as you can imagine, it was pretty cold with no wetsuit, uh, but she braved it. And uh, uh, Faye Baird was her name. She was a real uh, amazing lady. My guest is Jim Kempton. The book is called Women on Waves. I'm Larry Davidson. And this is the podcast Artful Periscope. Let me give you another name because I pull a lot, of, a lot of names out of the book and sent out of the hat. I love it. And I'm going to I'm going to throw them at you, and I'm sure you can handle them much better than I. She's called the Godmother of Surfing. Is that Linda Benson? Linda Benson is one of the most amazing California women, perhaps a woman of surfing ever. Uh, she started out uh, before she had really become known. She went to Mal uh, she went to Makaha in Hawaii to what was then the sort of world contest. It was called Makaha International. It was the only contest where people from all over the world came. She won it at 15, the first time she'd been there. She then, on that same trip, went to Waimea. It was breaking, not giant, but you know, 15 foot or more. Right. She didn't have a board, so she borrowed a board, and at 15 went out and surfed Waimea on a borrowed board. <laughs> uh, that gives you a little idea of what kind of a, uh, of a woman she is. Were women accepted into a man's world in a sense? We always hear about these territorial battles for certain areas are dominated by certain groups. Was she accepted? Was she unique or was she embraced in a sense into the world of surfing? Are you talking about uh, Linda in particular? I, 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 beyond Linda, just just women in general, because I'm going to I'm going to throw another name at you because I just watched this program again I, and movie again, and uh, it's based on a real person. That's Gidget. Now you watch the surfing scenes in Gidget. Okay, you you get the actors, and you know it's not real. You know it's kind of whatever right. they do. But Gidget, sure. the story about Gidget is based on somebody named Kathy Conner. Is that correct? That's correct. Another really wonderful lady, uh, now in her 80s, uh, and just as spry as as can be. She's the uh, ambassador to the uh, to the chart house. Uh, I'm sorry, sorry to Dukes uh, in in uh, in Malibu, where she holds court. Still, she started surfing there when she was a, a real youngster, and that was given the name Gidget because she was a half half girl, half midget. Right. Uh, so they called her Gidget. And when she refused to uh, be intimidated and continued to, to ride until she was good, uh, all, all the guys fell in love with her. Uh, let's continue with the names because this is edification for me, quite honestly. Um, I'm just, once again, I'm going to keep throwing them out there. You can just bounce them off us. You're more than welcome to. Another name I wrote down in my notes, Joyce Hoffman. Yeah, Joyce was probably the most dominant surfer, woman surfer of her era. Uh, without a doubt, she was uh, tall, blonde, the absolute epitome uh, in looks of the surfer girl. Um, she was also one of the most successful surfers um, of anyone. She was she was named uh, the, the Sportsman of the Year by the Los Angeles Times. 
um, when uh, she was, I don't know, not even 20 yet. And it's the only time that the Los Angeles Times has ever given that uh, to uh, to a surfer. And it was a woman. She was a three-time world champion, uh, just a fantastic competitor. Uh, and she comes from a storied family of surfers that uh, both both married into the family and start and 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 you know her her father and her and, and her uncle were uh, sort of the people who started the fabrics, providing the fabrics for all of the surf companies that were to come. Now this podcast comes from out of Long Island, so there's a Long Island connection to some of the women in your book, and I'm going to give you I'm, I'm going to give you two more two names. Um, okay. I believe they came out for the Hamptons Classic, uh, Jericho Poplar. And I also yes. Nell Sewer is that is that her pronunciation of her last name? I think Rel Sun is that Rel? I'm about? sorry, yes, Rel. Well, that's okay. Yeah, Rel Sun. Okay. Yeah, Rel and 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 well, the two of them were probably two of the most colorful characters uh, in in surfing, and also in many ways two of the most significant. Uh, even though neither of them uh, um, perhaps were were multiple world champions. They both, in their own way, had more effect on on the surfing of the of the mid period of of the modern surfing era than anyone. Uh, um, Rel was the queen of Makaha. Uh, she was internationally known for her aloha. Uh, she died tragically uh, after fighting a twenty year battle with cancer, um, but in the meantime, sort of inspired a generation of of Hawaiian women uh, into the surf. Uh, and Jericho, along with with Rel, started uh, the very first women's organization, WISA, uh, and had the first uh, international professional surf contest for women only, uh, and has continued to be not only a colorful character, but a real driver of uh, women's uh, attainment of both rights and opportunities in the surf world uh, ongoing. Now, how and she's on the she's on the cover of the book. I might add. <laughs> I know, and it's it's a great cover, by the way. So you need to get go and get the book just for the cover. But actually, everything in between the covers is is really outstanding in terms of what you've done. How has the media changed how surfing is perceived? And once again, I think about the surf contest for women. I think about the media coverage, whether it's magazines, radio, television, even in movies, in terms of bringing the next generation of young surfers up because in the book there are some prodigies that you write about in the book and I think they have these prodigies in a sense as a cliche standing on the shoulders of giants so the media has kind of changed the whole equation in terms of bringing more people into the sport you know the, the, the media for a long time resisted for whatever reasons uh, covering surfing as a legitimate sport when in fact um, uh, it's my belief that both with men and women that, that some of the greatest athletes that we have in the world are surfers. It, 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 you would be hard pressed to find, and they've done studies with this, that the only other people who come close to surfers uh, in terms of being fit are soccer players. So if you can't uh, if you can't paddle through a ten foot surf and you can't and you can't run five miles in wind sprints, you're not in the same shape. You look at baseball players and even football players, and they've got enough fat hanging off of them to uh, you know there's not there is not one single inch of fat in any professional surfer. They are the leanest, most fit, most incredibly uh, athletic people you'll ever find. And uh, and so the, the the media has finally kind of recognized that, and I think that the Olympics has really brought that to a head. And the wonderful thing about that is, is that although the men's did not 
win in America, the the, the right. first gold medal was uh, was a woman, and the first, so and it could be no better representative of surfing or the Olympics uh, than the woman who won it. She is just a fantastic uh, person and personality, uh, uh, Carissa Moore, and just really, really uh, expresses the, the aloha spirit of surfing. Now, Jim Kempton, I think that's the other side of the coin. Now, if you look at Garrett McNamara, a lot of what he does is not for competition. It's for to conquer whatever is out there to conquer. And I think what fascinates me beyond the world of competition is that people just go out there and do it for very personal and private reasons. And I know this was depicted in 100 Foot Wave. One of the guys was one of the big wave surfers. There was an accident. Somebody had to be brought in and they didn't film him his big wave. And if the big wave is not filmed, you can't be scored in the competition. And this was this was an English surfer that worked very closely with McNamara in terms of the jet skis and helping him over the course of his career at Nazare. And that fascinates me that there are people today as we speak that you know are probably surfing right now and are doing outrageous things, but it's never ever been captured. You know, one of the things that I've always felt, and this is just my own personal opinion, but I have always felt that that surfing should be treated um, more like a festival than as a competition, because everyone's performance is different and to try to make everybody's the same so that you can judge them that way, in many cases, misses the point. Some of the greatest stylists that have ever been in surfing uh, have been uh, non-competitors and still are today. And the, the enormous attraction that surfing has, if you were to make the case that, well, we do this because we want to, you know, make it more commercial or make it, make it more uh, of, a, of a sport that, that, that makes money, um, the great attraction has never been to become a, a competitive surfer. It's always about the joy of riding waves, whether that's men or women. That you may aspire at some point to become a pro, but that's not what makes people drawn to the act of surfing. It's the it's the unbelievable joy. You know, the very first time that surfing was described uh, was when Captain Cook uh, came to the islands, and what his what what his surgeon, who was the person who was also writing the logbook, said was, "It looked like the ultimate pleasure." And I think that that's really what draws people. Now, how has the technology changed the sports? The old big boards were really big and really heavy, and you had to paddle yourself out there. So when you talk about being in shape, you had to really be in shape just to get the board into the water and kind of maneuver it around. But everything, things have changed. Boards have gotten smaller, more technology. You've got paddle people going out, paddling out. Of course, the jet skis have changed the equation because you cannot get out in, Ma- in Nazare by your they tried. They tried to paddle out in, in Nazare, and it didn't work, and they had to cancel the competition. But what fascinates me is the technology and studying weather patterns. And Nazare is unique because of the 100-foot, uh, I don't want to call it, cave below that it affects the waves. And just watching the television show, but reading your book, I learned an awful lot about the technology that is behind the physical act of surfing. 
Yeah, it's really come a long ways. The shapers, and they are now be, be, be beginning to become a lot of women who are shaping, which was really a man's domain for a long, long time. But as more women enter the sport, uh, the 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 roles in which women play continue to expand, and technology is definitely you know one part of that. Uh, that surfboards have allowed the, the technology of surfboards and the, and, and the design of surfboards has allowed people to do things they never could have done before. Um, and today, people are designing boards that you can take off under the lip, i.e., as the wave is pitching out, right. you, can take out under, right. you can take off underneath them. That's how tightly they're designed. Uh, so it's an amazing it's an amazing time for surfing. Although every single era has had its heroes and its amazing breakthroughs. And women have been a part of that throughout. Now, my next segment is going to be an amputee athlete, gold medal mm -hmm. winner at Paralympics and world record holder. And I'm going to mention another name because people are probably familiar with also the basis of a movie called Soul Surfer. Um, yeah, do you know Bethany Hamilton? If you don't know her, what are your thoughts about what she overcame in terms of losing her arm to, I, I guess she was attacked by a shark. Is that correct? Yes. In fact, I know the family quite well. Uh, in fact, her father was an old friend of mine from uh, from California before he moved to Kauai uh, and had Bethany. And uh, the, the story there is just replete with amazing kind of, I don't know if serendipity is the right word, but, but uh, you know, um, but just amazing uh, uh, connections that you would never, you would never dream of. Uh, he was actually in the hospital ready to be taken in for an operation. Right. Uh, and, the, and the doctor came in and, and had to take his bed so that he could treat Bethany with her, with her arm that had been bitten off at the California surf museum, uh, where I am the president. Well, I'll take a moment to, to, uh, to, 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 to do something there, but we have that board and, and her dad gave me that board to, uh, to, to display at the museum. And you can always tell when people get to it because you can hear the gasps all the way from, all the way from the front desk. Uh, and she, was an amazing surfer then, but what has really been astonishing is how well she surfs with a single with a single arm, and uh, and and how little she has let that slow her down. Uh, I think it's a real testimony both to her faith and also just to uh, to her uh, ability to overcome uh, adversity like that. I've been watching the Paralympics because I'm a big fan anyway, but just based on my small involvement with amputee athletes. And the athletes that um, really take my breath away, they all do. They all do. But just watching the runners who are blind with the guide runners, to what degree has the world of surfing made adjustments for, quote, unquote, um, physically challenged athletes? Have there been any blind surfers out there, any surfers with um, disabilities, but have overcome the disabilities through support of the surfing community? So there is now uh, both an amateur and a professional uh, um, competition for uh, for challenged athletes in surfing, and you see people with with uh, with amputated amputated legs, arms, right. blind uh, um, people with with uh, with no with with a missing hand, all kinds of physical uh, disabilities that are surfing unbelievably. 
And uh, it's just amazing. And, and so surfing has really embraced that. They've embraced the, 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 the wounded warriors. One of the things that we found about surfing is, is that it has a tremendous opportunity to have healing powers. And that people, when they have had any kind of adversity like that, when they get them into the waves, there's just something about riding the energy of the universe that really, that really brightens their day. I'm going to mention this because I have it in my notes, but there's a book out there just came out. It's called The Drop, how the most addictive sport can help us understand addiction and recovery. It's about the world of surfing. And you mentioned wound warriors and PTSD. And I think this book is should be read in conjunction with yours because it gives us a perspective about the healing power of sport in general. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, and I would just say surfing is at the top of that list. There's no question about it. Um, everyone takes from from uh, from from every every aspect of surfing's um, uh, program. You can see that in it. Sorry, my granddaughter just walked in. All right. Nice for you. I'm, I'm doing an interview. Hi, Grand. I saw a run by. I love that. Right, we got we got a minute and a half left. I like to do this because when I walk away from doing an interview, I said, what did I miss? So in a minute and a half, based on our conversation, which I thoroughly enjoyed, did I miss anything, anything you want to put into the equation based on your experiences and your great book called Women on Waves? You know, I think if I could say one thing about uh, women is that I was amazed by was just how many accomplishments they've made in the surf world that we didn't know about and that what seems to be the, the really truly uh, attractive thing is that women now feel like they have a history of their own in surfing and they never really have had that before. So although I'm only the writer of that, uh, I feel really grateful that I've been able to provide that to so many women who just want to have their own history, want to know about it. And these are kids oftentimes, you know, 10, 10 to 20 years old who have no idea what happened before them with women because there is no history of it. And now they're finding out all these amazing stories. Well, in terms of your book and putting out there the history of female surfing, I guess you're the American version of Boswell. Uh, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that. Jim Kempton is the author of the book called Women on Waves. Um, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate uh, it. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I, I really enjoyed it. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Awful Periscope. After the break, amputee athlete extraordinaire Todd Sheffauer joins the conversation. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest is Todd Schaffhauser. I remember Charles Barkley saying, I'm not a role model. I take issue with that with my guest, Todd Schaffhauser. From the first time I met him till today, he's a role model and he's in, been an inspiration, not just to me, but hundreds and probably thousands of people he'd touched in his life through his competition and through his professional career. So Todd, we haven't seen each other in a long time. Thank God for Zoom because we get to reconnect. So it's a thrill to see you again and welcome to the podcast. 
Well, it's a thrill to see you too, Larry. Thanks for inviting me, and uh, I love the time we get to uh, spend to catch up a little bit. We will. So I believe at the age 15, your life took a dramatic turn. What happened? Yeah. Uh, actually, I was in high school at the time. Uh, actually, middle school could be our high school starts in 10th grade in North Babylon. And, um, yeah, I was going out for the football team. And I didn't pass the physical because uh, the doctor saw there was something that was just not right with my left leg. It was swollen. I was getting a lot of shin splints at the time. Right. I didn't much of it, uh, but it's you know had me go to a, see a uh, a primary doctor, which had me go see uh, another doctor, and and then I just had a weird accident. As actually, it was bowling with my friends, and uh, my leg gave way. It just kind of went weak. And I fell and I kind of did a flip and I, I actually fractured my wrist so bad I had to go see a specialist. And when I went to go see that specialist, the guy's name, Dr. Kandel in Bayshore. And uh, the week earlier, he just left Sloan Kettering Memorial Cancer Hospital. He started his own practice. Right. And uh, when he took care of my wrist, he saw my leg and he was like, let me take an x-ray. And uh, then that night, everything just changed. And uh, the next morning, I was on my way to Sloan Kettering. I didn't know why I was actually going. My mother didn't tell me. Uh, then I, we met with the doctor there, and then I was told everything that was going on. So it was one day I was just a kid in, in middle school, ninth grade, and the next day my whole life changed. Uh, it really incredible. How do you process that? Because just being a teenager is difficult in terms of obstacles. The fact that you're facing the – well, were they telling you that you were going to actually lose your leg? Did they give you any options going there first? They, they gave me uh, – everything was just like a blur at that point when they said what was happening. Uh, but they said that they were going to try to save my leg. Um, they didn't say it was going to be amputated at that point. They right. said they were going to try to – a chemotherapy protocol and that chemotherapy protocol, if it would work and kind of shrink the tumor, then, you know, they could see what could happen. Um, but you know, everything at that point just is like went in kind of one ear and out the other. Cause I was just in such shock of what happened because I was, you know, just an everyday kid. And then all of a sudden this whole thing is like a whirlwind thing just happened so quick. Um, but, six weeks of chemotherapy it didn't work and then they said that you know we have to come uh, amputate your left leg above the knee and i wasn't you know i i didn't want to do it in the beginning i didn't understand i was really worried about what was i going to be able to do you know you know 15 i was i wasn't like an athlete athlete i wasn't like in a, a organized sport in school, but I was still very athletic, you know, every day, you know, with the North Babylon, we, we have block versus block American right. Avenue versus Chelsea and versus windmill. And, you know, and it was, just, it was awesome. Just, you know, hanging out with my friends every day. That's what we did. We played hockey when it was hockey season, baseball, when it was baseball season, football, you know, we always played football. So it was a, it was a real Real change. All right. I'm going to mention some names because this ties into something called real change. I got to know both of these people and um, they affected my life, but in a much more dramatic way, they affected your life. Patty Rosbach and David Balsley. You want to talk about them? 
Uh, I met Patty when I was in the hospital. She was a, a nurse and she was running the Aspire program. She was a below the knee amputee. And uh, she was, uh, to me, a was mentor right from the very beginning. Because the first time I ever met someone that was an amputee, uh, you know, and the second person, Jack Raff, he came to the hospital to see me. He was with the Eastern Amputee Athletic Association. Right. He came in and she was just, she came in with such inspiration and, and for me, hope about what could be. Um, it was incredible. David, David was, to me, he was uh, a game changer, if you, if you will. He inspired me so much. He was in a lot of ways at that point when I mean, my parents were divorced, kind of like a father figure in a way, yeah. uh, just so always, I can always count on to be there for me when I needed him to, because the sports is what helped me get through this. So when we were going on that track or in the gym at Suffolk Sports Training Center, that's my, my, when I look back on my career, the best times I had was not even so much the competitions. It was the training we did and just the time spent Suffolk Sports Training Center, Hopog High School. And uh, David was a big part of that. I could not have done this without David. Yeah, I remember that training facility. I saw you guys in there. I'm going to call this the three amigos. You, you're smiling, Dennis Oler and Sarah Ronardson. Boy, did you guys make a splash representing a Long Island on the national level, on yeah. the international level. And if I remember Dennis went down to Houston and trained with Carl Lewis. Sarah yeah. Ryanson was the first amputee, uh, above the knee amputee, to do Ironman. And also we'll touch upon your career, former record holder, world record holder. So just talk about the three amigos all coming out of a Long Island doing and accomplishing amazing things over the course of your careers. Well, Dennis and I, we still work together till this day. Uh, when we first met, you know, his father drove me to the airport because I couldn't even drive at that point in time to go down to our first competition in Nashville, Tennessee. And that's when I met Dennis. Uh, didn't realize he was from Long Island. We met. He was from actually originally from Deer Park. He moved to Valley Stream. Right. But started training together and <clears throat> we're really inseparable at that point. Sarah came in, I believe she was like a year later and then she started to train with us on the track and at Suffolk Sports Training Center. And uh, she was uh, a big inspiration to other female athletes to, to get started. And uh, now in the Paralympics, I mean, this year of the Paralympics, the first time ever for above the amputees, First, Italy had a, a clean sweep. It took uh, gold medal, silver, and bronze. But it was the first time ever you had four female athletes above the knee that were under 14.8 seconds, which is incredible. It's, it, it's amazing. So I, I watched the Paralympics. I, I was at Nashville for your competition. I went with Sarah to the Canadian American Championships in Calgary. Um, so I've got to witness this all firsthand. That let's break down the terminology because when you watch the Paralympics, if you don't know much about it, there's all these different categories for disabilities. And of course, you worked with what's called an AK. So let's break down starting from just losing your foot to being a BK, an AK, and some people, the amputation is already up to the hip, which changes dramatically what's known as the biomechanics of movement. So let's, for the audience out there who's unfamiliar with 
the terminology and what you do. Let's start from the very basics of how the dynamics work, para, uh, biomechanics work, just losing your foot all the way up to, up to uh, only having your hip left over. Yeah, so what, they, what they've done in the Paralympics recently is they've kind of combined classifications because there's just so many classifications, it's very confusing. Um, so they try to really combine. So below the knee amputee is missing your leg from the, the knee down. Right. It could be just ankle. It could be midway uh, through the tibia. But then you're going to have a prosthesis that's going to uh, just basically have a foot. And that foot's going to be a carbon graphite foot, a really high tech Kind of like you see on television, these giant springs or a C or kind of a J-looking right. foot. And that's something that everyone uses. They all have uh, great you know, suction kind of technology to keep the leg on. Um, but everyone is in that same category now. So whether you're a bilateral below-the-knee amputee or a single below-the-knee amputee, you're in the same exact category, which – and back when I, you know, I remember in the beginning when I was competing, the bilateral below the amputees were in my category yeah, because yeah. they just enough amputees at that point. But now you have so many that are competing, which is awesome that they had to kind of uh, restrict the categories. For above the knee, missing your leg above the knee so you don't have your knee joint. You got a mechanical knee joint, and then you have a socket that comes all the way up to your thigh. And this is something that really where the technology has changed a lot because now they're making running legs for above the amputees. So they realize is that the technology of just a walking leg really wasn't uh, good enough and, and quick enough for the athletes. So now these companies are realizing they have to make an actual leg or knee joint for uh, those athletes that are runners. All right. Here's another question that uh, I just kind of learned about watching the competition this year from uh, Tokyo. Now, you you are pretty much 100, were a 100-meter sprinter, but I think you did a lot of different events. So based on where the amputee is, the amputation is, and your prosthetic, and now you, if you have to run 200 meters or 400 meters, I don't think you were running long distances until we'll talk about New York yeah. City, New York City Marathon. So making the turns, how does that change the biomechanics in terms of the adjustments? Running straight is one thing. Running inside in a turn because you've got a short, in a sense, a short leg and a long leg because of the turns. How do you have to compensate for that? Well, if, if you're a single amputee, depending on which side the prosthesis is on, is if you can lean into the turn, that right. makes a huge. Uh, what's interesting, though, is for the bilateral below the amputees, Blake Leeper, he's the, the fastest guy. Uh, he, his 400 meter time is under 44 seconds. He's the only one that's ever in the history of the Olympics and Paralympics, but the Olympics, that his fastest time in the 400 meter is the last 100 meters. Everyone else, when they're kind of like slowing down, he's still picking up speed. So he's slow down the turn because it's harder for him to lean in. Right. But when he gets away, he picks up a lot of time. But but isn't that the controversy with the flex foot that give, the return of energy gives you an unusual advantage? Because in 400 meters, you're basically starting to slow down. It's a matter of how you can hang on to maintain your form. If he's speeding up in the last 100 meters, that is, in a sense, is an anomaly. So is the flex foot giving him a unique advantage in terms of the competition? It is. It's the height. And that's why they just, for 2020, they released what's called the MASH rule, the maximum allowable standing height. 
And that is basically, they have this formula. So when you get fitted for that uh, sprinting prosthesis, you can't go above this certain height. And if you are, then you're disqualified from the competition. So Blake Leeper has to now fit into this. He was taller when he was setting these records, right, all these fat. Right. But now he's at the point of where he's slightly under that. But this, this rule, which took now is established for 2020, everyone has to follow. So beforehand, there were really no rules. You could be how tall you want. Uh, remember Milton from the back in the yes, in I the do. Yeah, he came out onto the track and he was like six foot six, six foot seven. There were no rules on how tall you could be. And I think it was it was very, you know, at the infancy stage. But these carbon graphite, because I worked with research and design, working with Flexwood and, and Latchford, which is another manufacturing company, these carbon graphite feet were developed to do exactly what they do, which is to recreate and better the human foot. So they, it's exactly what they made is what, what people are able to utilize. Now they see that this is actually uh, going to be Someone is the below the knee amputees in this year's Paralympics. You had three guys under 10 7. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, so that's going to be something where you know, how, how fast can they go? All right, I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. My guest is Todd Schaffhauser. Take us back to the first Paralympics you competed in, um, as a young man with a lot of hopes. And there there were people in the stands. So share those experiences with us, your first time experience. Because I believe three times you went to the Paralympics, correct? Yes, I went to 1988 in Seoul, Korea, 92 in Barcelona, and then 96 in Atlanta, Georgia. 88 was just incredible because, uh, you know, first time going to Korea, uh, I really didn't travel much outside of New York, you know, until I started competing. Uh, going there and uh, what I didn't realize at the point in time is that uh, that was the first sanctioned event or race for above knee amputees. Uh, the Paralympics started in 1960, but it wasn't until 1976 that amputees competed. Right. It was, it was at that point in time, it was only swimming and wheelchair. Uh, uh, but it took until 1988 to have enough above the amputees to have a race. And it was only one event, a hundred meter dash. So it was really special uh, when I, and I actually didn't see that any, any uh, copies or videos of that race until like 15 years after the race, someone sent me a copy of it. Uh, yeah, it was, it was an incredible moment to be there. Uh, when I came out of the block, I tripped. So I was playing catch up and I just watched not only everyone passed me, I saw like my life just flashed before my eyes, but I remembered everything we did in training and just, uh, David just, I remember David saying to me, saying to me, when that gun goes off, you should run as fast as you can. <laughs> That's one, th one thing David did. I think if you watch it, the old, uh, amputees that were above the knee it was a hop skip type of thing. Did he redefine your mechanics and had you, I don't know if you were the first one to do this, but you, he taught you how to run leg over leg, which was very difficult in terms of where the amputee amputation was. So what did he do to change your running form? Well, I, what we saw was that I, when I was running the traditional way, I, you know, edited, not keep up. So we had to find a new way. And uh, what was great about David was that he was always think by the box. 
It's like, well, what else can we do? So he's like, well, let's try to run normally. And uh, so we were able to use the prosthetic to our advantage, like kind of rebound off itself. And right. The leg. And uh, learning that technique control, it took a while. I remember practicing in the parking lot at Suffolk Force Training Center. Yeah. You know, do, do it there in the beginning. But once I got the technique down and I understood what he was trying to say, uh, then it was I had to get my hip really strong uh, because it was different than anything ever did in training. Uh, but once we did that, then it was just a, a whole new way of doing it. Yeah, I believe in, I mentioned, I tease that you are a world record holder. So I think you set a new world record, correct me if I'm wrong, in 1995 in the World Games in Germany. What was that experience like? It was it was awesome because that that's, again, when they started to combine the classes. And uh, so I, I really, in the classification as a whole, was not going to be at the top because you had bilateral below the amputees in the right. class. However, I still... You know, every year I still wanted to try to do the best I could to my own personal best. And that's what drove me. And the biggest thing to drive me was to break that 15 second barrier that they had never done before. So when I had the chance to do that in Germany, I, I, I had my, I called my wife and I said, you got to call David because I remember all these years we said, that's what we wanted to do is to break that barrier and, you know, be able to do it. So at that point in time, I knew I had one more Paralympics in me. Um, but that was a big point because it's not only just running step over step, but also then we changed and started using those blades, right. which was enough. It was, it was more difficult than people thought because um, for below the knee amputees, you just put the blade right underneath. For above the amputees, a lot of changing of angles might work better. With uh, Alan One of the highlights of my life, uh, I went with you at the start of New York City Marathon, and because uh, we get to, we got to start earlier, so we got we went through all the neighborhoods as as the, before the race was coming through, and then the leaders the leaders came through, and it's amazing to see how fast they're really running, and we covered thirty kilometers, eighteen point six miles, and it was an amazing experience. And I don't know if you enjoyed being with me, but I definitely enjoyed being with you on, on that journey that we took that day on the course in New York City Marathon. That was awesome. I, I talk about that a lot. My brother started running marathons after that. He saw me do it. He run New York City seven times. That was an awesome experience, but uh, it was it was tough. You know, it was it was a very tough thing and. I realized after that was that I want to be a sprinter, <laughs> but it was to go through and just having your support to be able to make it as far as I did. It was, it was, I, I, I always, I, I wanted to finish that so badly. And, um, you know, what thought about, but then doing the 10 K like the Boulder to Boulder, that's just, that's more my style. And that, and that we finished in the football stadium at the University of Colorado. And that was a great course. That was a challenging course, up and down. But to run into that stadium, once again, um, you allowing me to be with you was another one of the highlights of my mediocre athletic career. But we had we shared a lot of memories. I want to mention another name because this name came, comes up periodically. I had a, a, a writer and a very famous uh, journalist, 
um, was on the program with me, and he's a Canadian, Arthur Kent. And I know because of Terry Fox, everybody in Canada reveres Terry Fox. What, to what degree was Terry Fox, in a sense, if he was a role model for you, like you became a role model for a lot of people that followed you in your athletic career? Uh, Terry Fox is a big part of my, uh, for me to help me. When I met his mom, when we were competing up in Canada and he gave me a, a signed book, that was a huge moment of it was an honor. Uh, but, you know, when I was sick going through cancer and on the chemo, you know, chemotherapy basically was you get to chemo, you're in the hospital a couple of days, you go home, you're sick for a couple of weeks, you're better for a week, and then you start all over again. Right. So during a year of that, one day I was just in my room, happened to turn on the TV, playing on HBO was Terry Fox story. And when I saw that, that was the wow and inspired me and motivated but seeing him run and do what he did you know that's where i was like well i can do that and that's something that you know really motivated me to want to say you know i can still be an athlete i can still be able to go out and do things with my friends and be a normal teenager and yeah i'll be different but i can still do that so it was a big uh life-changing moment for me you did a lot of speaking engagements with Dennis Oler, and I went to see a lot of them. And what amazed me is um, how receptive the school kids were to both of your guys. Dennis used to have, I called a little trick. You used, to, you used to do a running demonstration, so did Dennis. Dennis would get the kids in a little circle on the floor, and he would take his, his prosthesis off, and he would do like an, almost like an elephant trunk thing. And they, the, yeah, that's it. And they would laugh and laugh. And what he did was genius. And what both of you did with genius, you desensitize people to in terms of how they view people with disabilities and how they're different. And that pres those presentations have always stayed with me because it was so smart how you made something that some people would recall from because it was so different. And you embraced all these people, these kids, these young kids, and they walked away this generation that you educated saying they see somebody different. That's okay. They're just a little different. And I want to thank you guys in retrospect for what you did many years ago in terms of educating a lot of people to how accept people who quote unquote are just different. Yeah, we now and then we meet uh, students that we talked to back then and they're out in their careers and you know, a couple of them are physical therapists that we've met and so that's kind of awesome. But uh, the, the, our goal was to be able to, you know, for me being like 15 years old, I want kind of, what are the questions that you know, want to and the one thing was that most of the kids they've never seen before. They've never seen somebody uh, take their prosthesis off. That, that's what's unheard of. Yeah. And uh, somebody, you know, not only do that, but also be able to have fun and joke about it. And uh, and then to have see us run, you know, and just put it in a different light. So, and reality is that when we were training back then, you know, we were still competing at the height of our career. So we were faster than a lot of the kids, most of the kids, especially in some of maybe when we talked to the high school kids. Right. 
right. but in the middle school and the elementary school, it was, it was a lot of fun. We did so many big programs. You know, I remember the one biggest program we did was Walt Whitman high school. That was, that was awesome. The whole school. Yeah. I remember Dennis running down the aisle and jumping onto the stage. Because he was running so fast, that was part of his shtick. Right. He, he would, would, sli- would slide. I've, I've never forgotten that. I do want to mention something else, though. That a lot of athletes, when their athletic career is over, it's over. What you did, and what Dennis did, and what Sarah did is, you took your love of sport and turned it into a lifetime occupation. So I believe you are the co-founder of the Amputee Walking School. So tell us about that. Well, at the at the time when we were competing, um, you know, we got a lot of from uh, you know from prosthetic companies, from hospitals. They, they would see us on in the news or or in a paper, and the question we'd always get is how how did you do that? So I remember the first time that happened was in 1988 after we came back and uh, Austin, Texas, and. The guy, a prosthetist, had contacted us. So I we gave that information to David, and David's like, "Well, I can't go to Austin. I gotta, I gotta work." Right. So he's you guys go down, and uh, so we went down, and we that was our first ever program. It was a running clinic, uh, but we had four amputees that came out that day, and two of them actually wound up qualifying for the 1992 Paralympics. Uh, but that was just when I, we did that, I saw that there was a real need for this. And let's you know do another program. The second program we did was in L.A. We had 75 amputees that came out. And it wasn't just your younger kids. At this point, it was your mom, dads, grandmothers and grandfathers. And they didn't want to just learn to run. They wanted to learn to do just to do more. So, you know, a lot of patients that we've worked with now over the last 33 years are doing the walk-in school. And it's, it's been traditionally the walk-in school, if you want to say officially when it started, it would be kind of 2003. Unofficially, it was the running clinic before that. But it was still, we were doing essentially the same thing, working with the amputees of all ages that would come out and want to learn to do more. Well, the long-running walk-in school we do is in Kentucky. It's in, now in its 17th straight year, Lexington, Kentucky, of all places. And uh, one of the hospitals there and one of the prosthetic companies can't support in the program. But we do it all over. Um, the newest thing we do is with a, uh, we brought the program inpatient to the subacute level because, uh, again, a lot of people we see are diabetic and vascular. Right. And the thing I always wanted to do was to be able to work with people. You know, if someone is just have the amputation, contemplating amputation, we can work with someone from the very beginning, help them build a great foundation so that they can do more like we were able to do. Um, what can we make a change? And I think we have. I think we've really changed the whole rehab industry. What, what I learned from you guys and Patty that being physically active is so important, especially if you've gone through chemotherapy because chemotherapy can do some danger uh, is dangerous and detrimental to the cardiovascular system. So movement is really, really important. To what degree for you, people facing this is having some form of counseling besides physical activity? Do you touch upon that, that sometimes you just need somebody to talk to that can kind of walk you through what you're going to experience? You were 15 years old. 
that was a blow, not just physically, but I imagine emotionally and psychologically. And right now we were understanding a lot more about just supporting people through everything, physically, emotionally, and psychologically. So do you have any recommendations for how to go about getting counseling for people facing what they're witnessing in terms of losing a limb? Yeah, I, the biggest, people always ask, you know, what's the biggest part job is the biggest you know, impact that make? And it's the mentoring during right. program. So every amputee, I think, needs for someone that they could look to and see that, you know, because the one thing that somebody wants to see, the one thing that I wanted to see was what is life going to be like three months down the road if I have the education? What is it going to look am I going to be able to do what am I going to be able what do I what do I what am I going to feel at that point so I think that everyone needs a mentor and whether that mentor is another amputee or it could be a psychologist or, or it could be a family member someone that you could be able to talk to about this open and help them so when we do our, our programs it's we it's continuous mentoring in the beginning because without that without the the uh the buy-in from the patient to want to really do the rehab. So there's going to be a lot of work to rehab. Yeah. But if you have someone that's motivated and willing to do it, got the will to do it, then you're halfway there. So mentoring is a huge part of what we do. And as, as soon as someone, this is why we also we talk to uh, vascular surgeons or a big part of wound care uh, teams around the country because realizing that if someone is contemplating amputation you know that's the time to really start to talk about this because you know once the amputation happens they might be uh, a little bit depressed and but, but beforehand if they realize that there's life after amputation that they're going to be okay and there's a team to help them well i'm hoping this life after this podcast i've always learned a lot from reconnecting with you i want to thank both of my guests uh jim kempton the book women on waves and somebody i've admired up close and from afar uh todd schaffhauser todd thank you so much for spending some time with all of us sorry thank you very much for inviting me uh till next time i'm larry davidson bye-bye The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisofaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidsonsProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tired to her kitchen chair. She